Hey, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad you decided to join us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and lifts you up. If you're looking for some more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. We'll be in the book of Ezra, chapter 9 and 10, and I'm going to be honest with you, I don't like how this book ends. So this morning is our last teaching, our last study in the book of Ezra, and um, well, you'll see what I mean in a moment. It's not an easy one, and it's why I prayed the way that I prayed a moment ago, because one of the things I love about God's Word is God doesn't apologize for His Word, and and He lays it before you and me, and you and I just have to, we got to deal with it. We have to wrestle with it. And there are parts of the Bible that make us scratch our head. There's parts of the Bible you say, why is that even in there? If I was writing the Bible, I would not put Ezra 9 and 10 in the Bible. Can I just be honest with you? Although I know it's not my decision, but, you know, if I was writing it, Lord, I would advise, leave this part out. But yet we have to grapple with it. We have to. It's God's word. And every word of God is flawless. Every word of God is perfect. So Ezra 9 and 10 is not a mistake. It's not a typo. It's from the heart of God. And we can get something out of this, even though it might make us scratch our heads for a little bit. So you're ready to have your brain hurt this morning, okay? I have been wrestling with this, but you know, it has really... I hope that it does in your home what it's done in our home for the last several days because we've been talking about this around our dinner table, just kind of wrestling with it. And it's really brought up some pretty good conversation. And sometimes maybe that's why God does stuff like that, why he gives us stuff in the Bible that makes you makes your brain hurt because it makes you have to talk about it. And I pray maybe this sparks some conversation in your own home. Wouldn't that be fun? That'd be a good thing. So here we are, Ezra 9 and 10. Let me set it up this way. The title of this morning's message is Repentance is Life-Changing. Would you say that with me? Repentance is life-changing. Every one of us needs to change. There's not a single one of us that has arrived yet. Can I get an amen? amen? And we got to change more than one thing. Can I get an amen? amen? I got a lot of things that still need to be changed. Don't you? And repentance, the word repent, is simply it means to change. I know a lot of people have given it a bad rap, and it sort of has a bad reputation, but the truth is repentance is very normal in life for people like you and me, because we need to change. Repentance means to change. The reason why God doesn't change is he's perfect. What would God change? You and I, however, are not perfect. We have a lot of things that need to change. Attitudes, beliefs, actions, thoughts, ways, words, things that just need to change. You know, thankfully... I think she would say, thankfully, I'm not the same man that my wife married 32 years ago. 
And I think she would say that's a good thing. I hope, I hope she'd say it was a good thing. But we changed. She wouldn't have wanted me to stay the same, and nor would I. I'm thankful for that. And so if you think about repentance in that way, you think about actually repentance is a good thing. It's, it's necessary. We're all changing, and we're all growing. Jesus said this in Revelation. He said to the church, to those whom, it's the book of Revelation 3, verse 19. He says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. This is the words of Jesus to people like you and me. I love you. And because I love you, I'm going to tell you when your stuff stinks. And, and when I tell you when your stuff stinks, that's when you be earnest and repent. You say, you're right, Lord. That's got to go. That's not good for me. That's got to be removed. I repent. I change it. See? This is, this is the nature of the Christian life. And so that's why the, the word this morning is the title this morning. I hope you remember it. Repentance, say it with me out loud, repentance is life-changing. If there's no change, there's no repentance. And, and we tend to sort of make repentance, uh, well, we run from it a lot, but it actually hurts us when we do that. The best thing for you and me is to, to begin to embrace the fact that I have a lot that needs to be changed, which means I have a lot that needs to be repented from. And that this is a good thing. The closer I get to Jesus, the more things I see that I need to repent from. And this is good. And so this morning, we're going to talk about repentance. Repentance is life-changing. But let me ask this question. What do you do? Like, I get repentance for some things. For example, let's say, let's say, Dom, I steal 20 bucks off you. I steal it from you. And then, and then I feel really bad because I stole 20 bucks off you. And, and you know, like the, the Holy Spirit convicts me, and I'm saying, oh, God, that was wrong. You're right. And I say, I'm going to change my ways. I'm never going to steal again. And so I'm going to come back to you, and I'm going to ask for your forgiveness because I, I hurt you. And then I'm going to give you... 30 bucks, because you know what, I got to make up, I want to make up for what I did. I want to make, I'm going to give it back to you with interest, and I, and I promise you, I'm never going to steal from you again. You say, well, boy, that's really good, Doug. I'm thankful that you came to that conclusion in your life and that you'll never steal again. But what happens if I've done something that has permanent consequences to it? And now I'm reminded of that thing over and over and over again. You know, like I, I think about, you know, murder. If I kill someone, now I can feel remorse about that, and I can be brought to task on that before the Lord. I mean, I'm clearly wrong. Obviously, it's a sin. I pay my debt to society. I can do all of that, and I can repent from that sin, but none of that brings the person back. So now there's a permanent kind of, a permanent consequence to that action. Does this make sense? How do I repent from that? 
And, and maybe some of you are dealing with some of that. Because we all, many of us have things like that in our past. Maybe it's, a, maybe it's an illicit relationship that has produced a child. And, and I love my child, and I certainly do. You, the, child, the child is not a mistake. We would, we would agree with that. But yet I'm reminded frequently that how this came about. Does this, you, okay, so it's not at all to say that the, the kid is in the wrong, you hear me, right? Just saying that here, here's a reminder that I made this decision that was not a good decision, that was sin. How do I deal with that? Some people would say, well, you just forget about it, just move on. Mm, I'm not sure that's the healthiest way. And other people kind of stay trapped in shame. They feel bad about it the rest of their lives. I'm not sure that's healthy either. What does repentance really look like in a situation like that where my sin has a consequence that doesn't go away? What do I do with that? You see where we're at? So I hope I'm setting it up correctly before we get into the Word, because that's where we're going here in Ezra chapter 9. So we come to Ezra, and we come to the end of it. Last week, we met Ezra for the first time, and we thought that was kind of weird, because here's a book named after the guy, and he doesn't show up until chapter 7. And so last week, we finally met Ezra, after six weeks of studying Ezra, and Ezra makes his way from Babylon back to Jerusalem. He leads this group of people, and we come here, Ezra chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. This is sort of to bridge the, the week on the, th- on the 12th day of the first month, we set out from the Ahava Canal to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us. Remember that? We talked about that last Sunday, the hand of God. That's so- something that really marked Ezra. The hand of God is the favor of God. So the hand of God was on us, and he said he's protected us from enemies and bandits along the way. So we arrived in Jerusalem where we rested for three days. That makes sense. So they get to Jerusalem, they unpack their bags, they take a chill. They have this little ceremony you see in the verse 33 and to the end of chapter 8. They kind of have a, they come together and they have a, you know, a time where they give thanks and they thank God for their trip and they get themselves back together again. And so no sooner has their feet landed in Jerusalem than Ezra is faced with a problem. Here's the problem. Ezra chapter 9, verse 1. After these things had been done, the leaders came to me. Now, so Ezra is speaking. Came to me and he said, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, and they've mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. Boy, now you're really in trouble if the leaders are doing it. Verse 3, when I heard this, Ezra says, I tore my tunic and cloak. I pulled hair from my head and beard and sat down appalled. 
Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn, fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God, and I prayed. Wow. So here's Ezra. Barely gets to Jerusalem. Barely gets his bags unpacked. And they come to him and they say, Ezra, we got a problem. And the problem is that our men, not just our men, but our leaders, have married these women who are Canaanites. They're not Jews. They're from the neighboring tribes and peoples around them. Now, this is not a problem... I want you to understand, this is not an issue of race. It's not, an, it's not the interracial marriage that's the problem. It's a problem of faith. It's a spiritual problem. You see, these men are Jewish men, and they're in a covenant relationship with God. And, and how many of you know God doesn't play second fiddle in our lives? You, got, you know that, right? God's, like, God's not interested in being on your JV team. He, he, he runs the show. And so these men are in a covenant relationship with God. And these women that they married are, it's not that they're not Jewish, it's that they don't worship God. They, they worship tons of other pagan gods. And so they bring their different religious practices now into the relationship and into Jerusalem and that's a problem. Um, not only is it a, it's a problem on one hand because Moses warned them about this. You see in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, Moses said this, Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Why? For they will Turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. See, the, the issue is you've got people, two different people in a marriage. You know, when you're married, when you're married, you want to share things in common. And it certainly is a good thing, isn't it, when you share things in common with your spouse. We like the same foods, we like the same movies, we, you know, we, we, maybe we come from the same family, similar family backgrounds, and so we share that. It's, it's, those kinds of commonalities are good in a marriage relationship. Well, if it's like that for those basic things, your relationship with God is the most important aspect of your life. So why would you not want a spouse who shares that with you? It's like, it's like two different people in a canoe rowing different directions. You're rowing against one another, and you're not going anywhere. That's the issue that's taking place here. And it's not just an Old Testament thing. The, in the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we as followers of Christ are told the same thing. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? The two don't 
mix. And so he's saying it's in a marriage of all relationships, it's we need to be going the same direction because that's what will benefit and bless our home the most. If we're going in opposite directions, we're setting ourselves up for extreme conflict. And so here's these men, these Jewish men, they've, they've married these ladies, they've, they've gone against their own laws, they've gone against God's best direction for them, they've married these ladies, and they come to Ezra with this situation. Ezra responds by just being heartbroken over it. And again, remember, it's not heartbroken over the fact that these women are non-Jewish. That's not the issue. Heartbroken over the fact that here are these people now in covenant relationship in their homes, and they're not seeking after God wholeheartedly. And Ezra is heartbroken about this, and he responds by, look at that, ripping the hair out of his own beard. Ouch. Ripping the hair off his own head. Doing the Hulk thing. Tears his tunic in half. Falls down. It says he sat appalled. Have you ever been appalled? Appalled means, have you ever been so upset that you're literally shaking? That's appalled. And Ezra was appalled all day long. He's, he's just shaking, so deeply disturbed by this problem. And then Ezra finally falls to his knee. He gets up, then falls to his knees, and he prays. And I'd like to, I'd like to read this whole prayer because it's actually very um, powerful. And uh, it's a, just it's, wor- it's well worth us reading the whole thing. But here's Ezra's prayer of repentance. He starts in verse 6. It says, he prayed, I'm too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God has not forsaken us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins. And he has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. Remember, that's the whole, the whole subject of the book of Ezra. They've been rebuilding this, their city and their temple. And so Ezra's acknowledging, hey, we're still under the thumb of Persia, but God, you've just given us this little, this little freebie 
this little opportunity. Thank you, God, for your grace. That's what he's saying. Verse 10, but now, but now our God, what can we say after this? For we have forsaken the commands you gave through your servants, the prophets, when you said, the land you are entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its peoples, by their detestable practices. They have filled it with their impurity from one end to the other. Therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. What has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt. And yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins deserved. Can you see that in your own life? I'm just going to pause right. I can't, can't pass that one up. Can you see that in your own life, how God has punished you less than your sins deserve? That's so important to see that because it, it, it brings gratitude to your heart. It brings a sense of appreciation to your heart of what Jesus has done for you. God has not punished us as our sins deserve. My, my sin deserves hell. My, my sin deserves to be just cast aside, thrown on the trash heap of the universe for all of eternity. That's what my sin deserves. And God, thank you, Jesus, has spared me of that. And this is Ezra. Ezra's acknowledging God, you have been good to us. You have been. And here we are throwing this back in your face. In essence, that's what he's doing. You know, God, with all the goodness that you've done to us, here we are just completely. And, and so this is the spirit of his prayer. And it goes on. And you've given us a remnant like this. So shall we then break your commands again? and intermarry with the peoples who commit such detestable practices. Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? Lord, the God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it not one of us can stand in your presence. This prayer of Ezra is beautiful. You can pick up a couple of things about just repenting just from this little prayer. First of all, notice that Ezra owns it. There's no blame shifting. That Ezra owns it. We, we have done this. And, and you notice also that Ezra owns the consequences for it. We're in this mess, God, because of our actions. And you, he's acknowledging God's justice. We've talked about that, I think, last week or two weeks ago. You're about justice. Listen, you don't want justice. God's justice is coming after you first if you're going to cry for it. And, and Ezra goes, hey, God, we, we acknowledge you, you have been just. You, we, you are, you're punishing us for our sin, 
We deserve it. In fact, but thank you because you're punishing us less than our sins deserve. This is his spirit. And I guess what I'm suggesting, friends, is not suggesting. I'm telling us there's this spirit of humility about Ezra that, that you need to see. That, you know, the Bible is very clearly, God says, he says that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If, if, you, if, you want to resi- if you want to miss the Lord, then put yourself in a position of, I'm, I'm self-righteous, I'm doing it all right, I'm doing it perfect. Go, go ahead. God resists the proud. But the humble, the man or woman who comes before God with this kind of attitude that Ezra has, God, I, I need you. God, have mercy on me, please. Oh, man, God responds to that. He loves that. And so here's Ezra. The other thing about Ezra that you got to see in this prayer is Ezra's repenting for a sin that he didn't commit. Ezra's not one of the guilty parties. And yet he's owning it as though he did commit this sin. Ezra's a part, he recognizes, I'm part of this community. I'm part of this. Therefore, see, by, by confessing it the way that Ezra did, Ezra is now actually becoming a part of the solution by owning the problem. I can't bring the solution if I don't own the problem. Isn't that really what Jesus did for us? He who knew no sin, the Bible says, became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus owned our sin in order to bring the solution for our sin to us. And aren't we thankful for that? So here's Ezra's prayer. He's repenting of this thing, of the sin in the people. And, and you know, <clears throat> I would say that if the book of Ezra end right, ended right there, I would say that is, that's really awesome. That's inspiring. I'm, I, I want to live that humble. I want to be like that. But it doesn't. Then there's this Ezra chapter 10, and I really wish God hadn't put it in there. Ezra chapter 10. So Ezra is now, wor- and now he's at this place, and he's, and he's repenting, and he's, and he's saying this prayer, and, and it's awesome. And you know what happens? As Ezra does this, people start to gather around him. The people, because Ezra is in the town square, and everybody's coming around Ezra, and Ezra's repentance inspires them to repent. And that's super cool because Ezra's not making any kind of command. Ezra's not saying, hey, you guys better do this, you better do that. That's not what he's doing. He, by his own example, is inspiring these people to follow in it. That's pretty cool. And, you know, you, you want a leader like that. You don't want a leader that says, hey, don't do as I do, do as I say. Parents, you don't want to do as I say. You want to do as I do. Follow my example as I follow Christ. So here's Ezra. He's, he's giving him an example to follow. 
And, and sure enough, chapter 10 opens up, and look at chapter 10, verse 1. It says, while they were praying, while Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children, gathered around him. They, too, wept bitterly. By the way, that, that throwing himself down, the verb tense there, it implies he was doing it repeatedly. Can you picture that? I don't even know if I want to do that. I don't know if I can get back up again. He's, he's praying and boosh, gets back up again. Boosh. He keeps throwing himself down on the ground. I mean, his knees must have been sore by the time he was done with all this. He's making quite a scene. And everybody comes around him. And, and, and they start to weep and they start to pray and they start to confess their sins too. And here's where it gets... Here's where it turns weird. Ch verse, chapter 10, verse 2. Then Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. That's pretty good. Verse 3. Now, let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Rise up. This matter is in your hands. We will support you. So take courage and do it. And then you read the rest of chapter 10, and they actually think this is a good idea, and they start to do it, and they put a time frame in place. So, and then they put consequences in place, like, okay, by this date, if you haven't sent your wife and your kids away, then you're going to lose your property. Like, they, they put that in there, right? And they're, and they're taking this serious. Here's the problem I have with that. That's a dumb idea. And I don't see that as the heart of God. Do you? Me neither. So, but yet the problem I have with it is this. There's nowhere in this chapter that God says, hey guys, bad idea, don't do it. And there's nowhere in this chapter where Ezra says, bad idea, don't do it. And, you know, and I could get it like you're allowed, you know, when you're brainstorming, you know, it's like you're spitballing stuff. You're allowed to have a dumb idea. There's freedom to have dumb ideas. But you don't have to follow it. So, so I can imagine that it's like this guy here. Can you see the scene? Can, can you picture it in your brain? I think, you know, I have a very overactive imagination. So I imagine these things. And, and you see, I see these guys. And they're all in the town square. And, and, they're, and, verse, uh, and later on in verse 10, chapter 10, we, we're told it was raining. So they're in the rain. And, and they're there. And they're all getting wet. And they're feeling really bad about their sin. And, and this guy, Shechaniah, you know, he stands up and goes, okay, I got an idea, everybody. Here's what we're going to do, okay? Here, we, we've got to make this right. So let's all just divorce our wives and send our kids away, and that'll, that'll fix it. And, and I'm thinking, if I'm Ezra, I'd be like, anybody else have another idea? Any, any other thoughts? Let's let's. You know, and if you're brainstorming, okay, sure, let's put them all on the whiteboard and throw out the bad ones and keep the one good one. 
But this is the only suggestion that gets made, and they stick with it. They say, okay, God, what do I do with this? Wow, what do I do with this? <laughs> you see what I mean? So it's in the Bible. So now my prayer is, God, how do we preach this? How do we apply this to our lives? What do we do with this? I think we got to ask ourselves, we got we to... Gotta, hmm. So, why would these guys have this idea? Why would they do this? Why would it even make sense to these guys? Let's, let's answer that question first. And by the way, I admit, none of these answers makes me comfortable. It just makes me less uncomfortable. So I'll just be honest with you. And, and this is a fun one. If you want to really, we can get into this and, and really discuss it. That's a fun one to discuss. But, I, but here's a couple of thoughts. Number one, it's possible, and actually this is what commentators, some commentators actually say. I'm not sure I buy it. But it's possible that the reason why these guys thought this was a good idea is because, technically speaking, their marriages didn't really exist because they were illegal. And so because it's illegal, it's not real, therefore it's illegitimate, so we can just dismiss it. It's kind of like the Catholic Church annuls it, like it never even happened. <laughs> sort of. I don't like that answer, but again, this is one of the thoughts. Another thought is that is that these guys did this because there, there was a shortage of good women. They, there was, they were exiles, remember. And the chances are that, uh, and we know from our earlier study of Ezra, that they actually lowered the, the age for priests from 30 to 20 because they just didn't have enough guys to fill the jobs. So they kind of loosened some of those standards. And so... Is it possible there were more men, there were probably a lot more men than women who made the journey from Babylon back to Jerusalem? And so you got these good, you know, Jewish guys that are lonely, and uh, how do you find yourself a nice Jewish girl? They're, she's not around, and so they took matters into their own hands, and, 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 and maybe they justified it the way that a lot of Christian young people justify it nowadays. Well, he, she is not a Christian, but he's such a nice guy. You know, she's not a Christian, but, I, but she does go to church a lot. So I'm sure she's, you know, and we justify it. We do stupid stuff like that all the time, don't we? But we take matters into our own hands. We try to help God out. Rather than simply trusting him and waiting on his timing, Believing that he does have what's best, we take matters into our own hands. That's what these guys probably did. A third, a third thought on all of this is, um, and this is a little more complicated to explain, but you know, throughout history, throughout redemptive history, as it's recorded in Scripture, there's really a progressive revelation of God and his heart and his character. You and I have all of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation. And this is complete. 
And this is all we need. This, this is a, a complete revelation of God's character and his heart and who he is. These people living in Ezra only had the law of Moses, which for you and me is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That was their Bible. That's all they had. And if you go to the law of Moses, the law of Moses actually, first of all, says not to do what they did. But then secondly, it says, if any man's basically not happy with his wife, you just write her a certificate of divorce and send her on her way. So in a sense, these guys are kind of following the law of Moses and what it says to do. Now, you and I have a complete revelation of God's heart and character. You and I read that and we go, well, that's, that's not everything. There's more to it than that. Exactly. But they didn't know that. So you and I have the words of Jesus. Jesus, who completes the revelation of God. And Jesus said, hey, you know, the reason why Moses gave you that law is because you guys are, are so weak-hearted, because you're so stubborn. That's why he gave you that law. Oh, that makes sense. See, we have the heart. We have the heart of God expressed in the completed inspired scripture. Does this make sense? I don't know. Like I said, it only makes me less uncomfortable. It doesn't make me totally comfortable. The truth is these guys did what they did for right or for wrong. They did what they did. And while it's not advisable for us to follow their example in what they did, we can certainly learn something about repentance. You got to say they took repentance seriously. You got to admire them for that. They might have been kind of bozos in what they did and how they applied it, but they definitely were serious about making changes. Remember, repentance is life-changing. And maybe you and I might learn from this ourselves and say, you know, maybe, maybe while it's not recommended that you take this kind of extreme measure, maybe... I'm taking repentance too lightly. Maybe a, a quick I'm sorry and on my way isn't quite the heart of God either. Maybe blame shifting, blaming somebody else for it, isn't the heart of God either. So maybe there's something I can learn from this. Repentance is life-changing. If I'm, if I'm going to repent, I need to change. Look at, you're, 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 you're sleeping with your boyfriend, and you're not married, and you know it's wrong. You break up. Repent. Don't just keep saying, I'm sorry. Make a move. Change it. So you're um, perpetually blowing up in anger all over the place at your family. Repent. Take some steps. Get some anger management classes. Go to counseling. Do something. Start to fix this thing. Repent. D don't be content to just stay the same and keep saying, I'm sorry. Make a change. Does it, do you see this? See, repentance is actually a really good thing in the Christian life. And, and so maybe you know, these guys applied it wrong, but we could learn from their example and say, okay, I, I, I do want to, 
I do want to be a person that takes it seriously. In fact, John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, he said, told us, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance is life-changing. And in this example also, friends, there's hope for those of us that feel as though we have sinned beyond repair. As I said earlier, sometimes we sin, we do things that then have permanent consequences, and sometimes we can be living in the shame of that, and, and I've sinned beyond repair. I want you to hear the hope this morning that's even in this weird passage, and that's this. God has the ability to redeem our sin. He has the ability to redeem our worst sins. But I have to give it to him. I can't keep control of it myself. You see, these guys in Ezra, you don't, you don't, you don't do a wrong. You know, two wrongs don't make a right, as we say. So these guys did wrong in getting into these relationships, yes. And the way they got out of it was to do another wrong, and that's not cool either. But I think if I could go back in time, again, here's my overactive imagination. If I could go back in time, and if I could be there when Ezra's doing all this, and these guys are standing in the rain, and they're feeling bad for all their stuff, if I could stand there, and if Shechaniah goes, I've got this idea, why don't we divorce our wives? <laughs> I think I would stand up and say, oh, no, 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 Shechaniah, thanks for your idea. How about, I got another one, and here it is. Let's trust the Lord with this. Let's ask God to redeem this situation. We got ourselves into this mess, yes, but God can get out. God can actually turn this thing around and redeem it, and he can make something beautiful out of this mess if we'll wait on him, if we'll trust him with it. So, so yes, God, we repent. We were wrong. We did it. Yes, God, forgive us. Please forgive us, Lord. And here we are, and now, God, I'm going to wait on you, and I'm going to trust in you to redeem this situation, to make something good out of this. I think I would challenge the guys in Ezra's day. I'd say, hey, men, instead of sending your wives away, why don't you be men who love God? Why don't you humble yourself before your family and say, honey, Kids, I screwed up. I screwed up. And the Lord's gotten a hold of me. But let me tell you, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. It's a new day in the household, in my household. New day in the Rouse house. It's a new day. We're going to serve the Lord. And honey, I'm going to show you what a man looks like when he sells out for God. I'm going to show you kids what a man looks like when he sells out for God. And I'm going, to, I'm going to trust you into God's hands. And we're going to honor the Lord in our family. You know what? They actually had two examples of it in their own history. Two ladies. One Rahab and one Ruth. Rahab was a prostitute from the city of Jericho who was welcomed into the community of God's people because she had a covenant with their God. 
She was not Jewish. She was, so the issue here is not race. The issue is faith. Rahab was welcomed in because she trusted God. She came into the same relationship that the Jews had with God. Ruth, same thing. A Moabitess, a woman from Moab, came from a totally pagan background. And yet she turned her back on that paganism, and she entered into a relationship with the God of Israel, and she was welcomed completely into the community of Israel. And you know that both of those women, Rahab and Ruth, made it into, they are in the family line of Jesus Christ himself. Go to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. You can look it up. Both their names are right there. They are ancestors of Jesus Christ himself. So I think I would tell these men in Ezra's day, guys, hold off. Don't be shipping your wives and your kids away. Let's wait on the Lord. Let's get right with God. Let's pursue him and let's trust him with this and see where he goes. And my friend, this is hope for you and me if you've gotten yourself in one of those very sticky situations. Do you hear it? Do you hear the heart of God today? I hope you do. I hope you don't hear shame and condemnation. I hope you hear the heart of God. I would just advise you, don't do something stupid to fix it. You got into this mess. God will get you out of it. But his ways are not our ways. Trust him. Let's wait on him. Be faithful to him. You'll see him do something pretty awesome. Does that make sense? So, friends, there's hope for us even in this. Like I said, it's a weird way to end the book of Ezra. If I was God, I wouldn't end Ezra this way. And, and the book of Ezra, you look, you look at how it totally ends. It ends with a list of 44 names. 44 names of guys who committed this sin. Priests who committed this sin. How would you like to have your name recorded for all of history? Your worst sin that you ever committed how would you like to have it recorded for all of history in the Bible? Y'all, you're that guy. Uh, I read about you in Ezra chapter 10. Oh, you're that guy. Wouldn't you love that? You say, oh, no, thank you. I'd like to pretend it never happened. Thank you very much. But maybe that's our problem. Maybe we try to cover up our sin our own way too much. Friends, the best solution is to let Jesus cover it. And when Jesus covers your sin, you can own it like you didn't even commit it. I can talk about things that I once did. I can talk about them like I'm talking about a totally different guy. You know why? I am a totally different guy. That guy that did those things is a dead man. He's dead. He was buried with Christ. The man you see before you today is one who lives anew because of the forgiveness, because of the grace, because of the power of Jesus. See? So it's not embarrassing to say, yeah, I did that, that, that. Yeah, sure enough. Sure. Learned a lot of great things. <laughs> Never doing it again. That's repentance. Repentance. Life changing. So what have we learned as we've studied Ezra? Let me wrap it up this way, and then we'll 
My apologies if I've gone too long. Just wrap up, Ezra. We've kind of made these key statements. We've built our study around these key statements. The first one is this. Prayer is primary. His prayer is the way that we connect with God. The second one is that Jesus is everything. We need an understanding of Jesus. We need a deeper revelation and experience with Jesus. He is everything. Third, God's word is obeyed. Every word of God is flawless. Even these tough ones, like we looked at this morning, it's the word of God. And so we wrestle with it, and we, we work together to apply it, because God's word is to be obeyed and followed. And then next, having God's favor is the definition of success. Success doesn't mean it went well, and failure doesn't mean it went badly. Success means I have God's favor. I did it God's will, God's way, and that has God's favor, period. Let's be people that honor the Lord regardless of regardless. And then this morning, repentance is life-changing. Let's be a people that aren't afraid to repent. We have the freedom to do that because we worship a Savior who paid for our sins. So we can now be free to acknowledge, yeah, I did that. That was wrong. I'm repenting from it. I'm seeking to change it. May we be the men and women that Jesus Christ has died for us to be. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out at newriverchurch.org.